Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, February 2nd. It's Groundhog Day. Apparently, Punxsutawney Phil came out and did not see a shadow this morning, cloudy all over the D.C., Pennsylvania, Maryland area. So we're in for an early spring, which is good news. Uh, and I would imagine that for a lot of the sailors out there in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, things are getting a little bit of a Groundhog Day effect uh, to them. But uh, they got to stay at the edge of the spear, tip of the spear, and uh, and on the edge of readiness. So uh, we wish luck to all of our sailors uh, out in the Red Sea who are uh, as part of uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian. Today's episode is brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies as the leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers. Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com defense. Okay, now let's get to my guest. Uh, joining me from Newport, Rhode Island today is Navy Captain Tom Clarity. He's the author of one of the American Sea Power Project articles in the January issue of Proceedings. It's titled, Tighten the Belt and Cut the Roads. Tighten the Belt and Cut the Roads. Tom, welcome back to the show. How are things in Rhode Island today? Um, overcast and uh, Pakistani Phil would not be seeing a shadow up here either. Got it. Uh, so no, uh, well, well, I guess there's, that is a, sh a sign of, uh, of spring for Punxsutawney. What's the temperature up there? It is in the like mid to high 30s, so it's not that bad. Yeah, it hasn't been a tough bad. winter. No, it hasn't been a tough winter here, other than maybe we had a week of cold and a little and a couple of snowstorms, but now it's starting to starting to feel like uh, beginning of spring is not too far away. Uh, for our audience, Captain Clarity is currently the commanding officer of the Naval Academy Prep School. He's a career naval flight officer who flew EA-6B Prowlers and EA-18G Growler aircraft. He commanded a Growler Squadron, VAQ-131, served as the operations officer for the USS Ronald Reagan, CVN-76, and was an instructor in Joint Maritime Operations, uh, the, the Joint Maritime Operations Department at the Naval War College. He's also the chair of the Naval Institute's editorial board, so I had the pleasure of working with him uh, on a monthly basis. So, Tom, with your short bio out of the way, let's talk about the article. Uh, so our, our audience has been following the American Sea Power Project. Uh, we had Admiral Swift on an episode earlier this month. Your article is different from the other warfare area or domain pieces. Uh, when I first read it, I called it the Theory of Victory article. So give us a bit of a strategic overview. Yeah, and of course, I'm going to start with the standard disclaimer, you know, these are my thoughts, my thoughts alone. They don't represent those of the U.S. Navy, U.S. Naval Academy. And I haven't been in a skiff in a number of years. Um, with that in mind, when we're talking about a potential war with uh, the Chinese Communist Party over Taiwan, there's a lot of discussion of weapons. There's a lot of discussion of platforms and uh, ample discussion of tactics as well. What I think has been absent from a lot of public discussion is a real consideration of what what does our strategy look like? You know, what is war termination criteria? What are we looking at for the post-conflict termination world? So with that in mind, I just I wanted to have something that 
took that uh, higher level approach towards a strategic employment of forces in the event of the phase three scenario actually occurring. Okay. And you, uh, in your article, you described three tenets that should shape U.S. strategic and operational thinking. Let, let's talk about those. What are they? Yeah, the first is, um, you know, we, we talk about the danger of mirroring when it comes to how an adversary is anticipated to react to something or how they're going to act. You know, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the, uh, the plan is not the U.S. government and the U.S. Navy. Um, with that in mind, I think we need to take a broader strategic approach to avoiding mirroring and refuse to respond to um, the CCP's objectives for war termination and for what their objectives actually are. Um, the second they start putting American ships on the bottom outside of the immediate vicinity of Taiwan, this is a this is a global conflict. So control of Taiwan at that point becomes not incidental, but not ultimately determinative as to whether or not we should uh, stop fighting. Um, additionally, we value platforms differently. You know, as a guy who spent a good part of my career on aircraft carriers, Amer American aircraft carriers are really important for the U.S. Navy. I don't think that they have the same reciprocal value to the People's Liberation Army Navy. So we need to make sure that when we are looking at targeting, we are looking through the lens of how does this link to an objective that we need to secure, not just, hey, what do we value as a U.S. military or U.S. Navy? Um, second, we need to reject what is probably the most likely um, factor for war termination on the part of the CCP, which is, hey, they have sufficient forces ashore Taiwan. They have sufficient control in some sector of Taiwan time to call the Americans to the negotiating table. It's like, no. The second you killed Americans, um, this conflict broadened. The second you started sending long range uh, missiles against uh, US allies in their, in their home territories, this conflict broadened. And uh, you don't get to determine when it stops. Uh, third and finally, uh, we need to establish very, very clear ex expectations for what strike execution looks like in terms of civilian casualties and uh, fratricide, which uh, we don't we don't have a frame of reference absent World War II for war on the scale as proposed in the phase three scenario. It is not going to be sterile. It is not going to be clean. We are not going to have time to have uh, loitering assets over target areas that can clearly determine between friendly forces, enemy forces and civilians. And, you know, and that is going to be a significant mindset shift that we need to accept because we are going to, in the execution of this war, like we're going to have fratricide incidents. There's going to be CIVCAS incidents. And uh, that is something we need to prepare our forces and our commanders for and the American public and the American government for as well. Yeah, while you were uh, starting to talk there about uh, about strategic thinking about this, uh, I'll remind our listeners and, and readers uh, that two other articles earlier in the American Sea Power Project uh, uh, in phase one, phase two, more than uh, more than a year ago for both of those. One was by uh, Bridge Colby um, that talked about a strategy of denial. Uh, and the other one was by Tom Mankin. 
uh, at CSBA. Um, and, and both of those both of those authors looked at this at the very high strategic level. Um, the difference, uh, you know, well, yours, your article is different in a number of ways, but your article is also part of phase three where we're getting down into the more tactical and operational weeds. Like how would you actually uh, do this? How would you actually employ forces? And what, what would this look like in the scenario of uh, the, the 2026 uh, war that we've teed up in the, in the December issue? But I would- yeah, And Bill, when I say that the focus has been on like tactics, platforms, and weapons, I'm not, honestly, I'm not even thinking about proceedings. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. about the broader conversation that we're having um, as a nation, as a, as, as a joint force. It's, uh, we just need X. And if we have X, then it clears this problem off the deck. And it's like, well, the broader problem is, what do we think the world is going to look like afterwards? And how do we get to an acceptable vision of what the world looks like post-conflict termination? No, that's a really good point. And, um, you know, I think another another thing that differentiates, in my mind, differentiates your article from the ones by Bill Toady and Graham Scarborough and uh, Scott Tate and Anthony Lavopa, um, they did what we asked them to do, which was, you know, for for uh, um, for Bill Bill Toady, uh, in particular, look at the submarine force, look at how you would have to fight with submarine forces, anti-submarine warfare, and submarines fighting in the uh, in the ASUW realm. Um, and you know, do we have enough stuff? Do we have the right you know weapons and platforms, and are they in the right places to allow you to do what uh, you would need to do as the the submarine force commander in this in this scenario, um, and the conclusions. If you read all of those articles, the conclusions is the conclusions are not enough stuff, not enough platforms, not enough weapons, and so perhaps the United States can't do what we would like to do. And I think that was one of the conversations you and I had at a at an Ed board meeting recently. Was you know we we want to you know play this game kind of like a football game. And and storm into the end zone and 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 win, right? And the end zone being the Taiwan Strait, stop the Chinese invasion from Taiwan, uh, protect Taiwan, put this porcupine defense around it, and deny the objective. Um, and you're saying, okay, well, you know, the conclusions from all these others is we we probably don't have the the, the military to do that to play that game. And so we got to look at it from a different perspective. At least that was my some of my big takeaways from from your piece and from those articles is like, okay, given given the what they say, then what what is a theory for victory? And I think your article sort of steps back to a strategic operational concept and says, all right, it's going to be a different game. Yeah, and I'd say even if we do have the forces, and I mean there have been a number of uh, war games where the results have been released to the public, where the U.S stops the invasion, it wins, um, but it does so at staggering cost. Yeah. So is that an acceptable outcome? And in my mind, it's not. You know, we that's the outcome that results in a world that is right back into multipolar competition, unstable actors, um, exploiting the opportunity to take uh, advantage of a security umbrella that the United States will have increasing difficulties providing. Yeah, good point. Um, 
Your, let me think about uh, one of the things that uh, I, I liked about your article, and I like generally when you write, you always uh, pull in some history. So you hearken back to Admiral Nimitz in World War II, and he had three questions uh, over his desk. Uh, so what were those questions, and, and how do they apply to this War of 2026 scenario? Yeah, so uh, Nimitz's questions, as best as I can, you know, reconstruct from history and you know, who knows what gets lost in the myth-making of post-World War II America. But, you know, question one is, is a proposed operation likely to succeed? Which makes sense. You're just inventorying risk there. Um, directly transfers still. What might be the consequences of failure? So already you're thinking about, hey, impact of branches, sequels, other operations. Uh, is it in the realm of the practicable? in terms of material and supply, you know, a huge one that we're going to face, I think, significant challenges on and something that has already been identified by uh, uh, Admiral Paparo, as PAC fleet commander is, you know, where we are in terms of the strength of our merchant force. And I think it's one that probably has increasing uh, resonance now as we're looking at the uh, now protracted war in Ukraine uh, being a further uh, resource uh, demand on our industrial base and our military base. Um, and I think all those remain valid. There's a fourth one that I think we need to add, which is, uh, you know, what's the cost of the available forces? Because Nimitz calculus is probably based around a defense industrial base that was fairly robust. Um, shipyards that could produce it, uh, you know, full-fledged combatants in relatively short periods of time. Um, manufacturing lines that have been converted to produce tanks and aircraft, and uh, we're not there. So it's not enough just to win. It's not enough to talk about the consequences of failure. We really need to think about, hey, what's the actual margin of success? And if you win, but at substantial enough cost where you can't mount follow-on operations or you have to cede territory, you're, you're not really winning. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a proceedings article we published within the last two years. And I, I want to say it was Matt Wright, another aviator who, who wrote the article. But it was uh, he, he, he touched on that exact point that Nimitz's calculus for the Battle of Midway and, and risking the carriers that he risked there was based on the fact that he knew that there were six more carriers coming to the Pacific very soon. So he wasn't risking what he he wasn't risking his entire force for the next you know year and a half. Yeah. He was risking a force knowing he had more coming and that there were more being built after that. And so to your point, you know, it's now taking us three, four plus years to build every carrier. Uh, so risking a couple of aircraft carriers in the Pacific in, in the war of 2026 scenario is gonna take a lot longer to replace those. Um you know, if you lose them. Yeah. And I would say it also depends on when do we risk them? Yep. Because I don't think that we're going to reach the level of uh, defense industrial base like we did in World War II. Um, even in, even in a protracted conflict, will we get much faster and much better? hundred um, percent. We will get far faster at producing combatants if this war protracts. 
And I mean, they saw that during World War II, you know, it was, hey, six months to get a ship out to three months to, to a month. We're not going to be able to replicate that timeline, but we're going to get faster, better, more efficient and more proficient at doing this as well. So will there be a time to risk those two carriers? 100%. You just have to make sure it's the right time to actually risk them. Yeah, that that's a great lead into uh, the next question. Uh, so, you know, conventional wisdom for a long time, people talking about and working on the uh, defensive of Taiwan uh, plan uh, is that the war should be quick. The U.S. should strive to make it quick. And your article refutes those notions. And you point out some paradoxical advantages of a long war. So talk about those for a minute. Yeah. And those planners could absolutely be right. You know, they might have access to something behind the door that, that I have no idea exists. But when I look at it just through open source information, you've got what, 80 miles at its narrowest point between the Taiwan Strait and mainland uh, China. Um, roughly 450 miles from Okinawa to Taiwan. Uh, you're looking at about 1300, I think, from Yokosuka to Taiwan. Uh, by the time you get out to Hawaii, over 5,000 miles, over 7,000 from San Diego to Taiwan. So when I'm just doing the time-space force analysis, like factor space really, really poses a significant disadvantage to the U.S. Um, we also have global responsibilities that the uh, Chinese Communist Party doesn't undertake. And even when they do, based on what we're seeing with the Houthis, aren't I wouldn't say super committed to upholding. Right. So our forces are um, dispersed and fragmented in a way that theirs aren't. And I think that the idea of a quick war is, okay, we fight and then everything's back to normal afterwards. Except again, if you look at the analysis done by those war games, um, it's not back to normal. The U.S. has suffered massive casualties We've lost massive numbers of aircraft and ships. And then what does the world look like afterwards? The Chinese defense industrial base presumably is somewhat intact. So they can recapitalize their forces much faster. And hey, maybe it's something they make another play for in two years. Are we going to be willing in the wake of a, uh, a quick victory to really put the investment back into recapitalizing our own forces? And what happens in the interim time period between then and when we actually get those forces back online? Uh, additionally, the Chinese really are dependent on imports and exports in a way that, yes, the whole world is, but not to the same degree. You've got a faltering economy, a falling birth rate, an overcounted census. And if this war goes on for a long period of time, that economic disruption, while painful to the entire world, is excruciatingly painful, I think, to the Chinese Communist Party and their ability to control the populace. You know, I, I look at the advantages of a long war being one, we were able to recapitalize our forces and probably emerge uh, out the other side better in terms of force capabilities and numbers and where we were when we started, which isn't just a argument for growing the Navy or the joint force, it's really so that we can ensure the peace afterwards. Uh, but it's one that really, really hurts the Chinese Communist Party. 
and as a result makes them less likely to act precipitously again after a decisive victory on the part of the United States. So um, long story short, it's an economic war with a military component. And yeah. I don't think that that's very dissimilar from our strategic approach, approach to fighting the Imperial Japanese during World War II. No, that's, I think that's a really good point. And I, I'm, I'm reminded that uh, just in the last really a little more than a decade, uh, you look at uh, the, the technology and the, the implications of uh, fracking uh, to the, you know, the U.S. economy, right? So we now produce more oil than Saudi Arabia does. Uh, we produce most of what we need internally, oil and gas, um, and the Chinese do not, right? So their economy is very, it's very, very dependent on imported energy and imported um, natural resources. The U.S. is in a better strategic position in terms of energy supply and, <clears throat> and natural resources, which gives us that, uh, you know, the, probably the ability to, uh, to play a longer game to play the long war uh, if we're if we're patient about it uh, in a way that is advantageous uh, where it's not advantageous to them. Yeah. yeah, and food. Yeah, right. Food production is that's you know, a very good point. Yep, and that, Chinese and that are really, importing seventy percent of their cooking oil and a significant portion of their rice, a daily staple crop. I mean, yeah. South China Sea is nearly fished out of their main source of protein. You know, a long war does not look good for the for the Chinese Communist Party. No, that's a great point. Um, uh, I just had a point and then I forgot what it was. <laughs> but um, let's let's talk a bit about you know you 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 pointed you hinted at this at the at the start. I just want to dive in a little bit deeper. You your article points to some harsh realities. Uh, including military and civilian casualties. Uh, so what's, what would your advice be to military commanders and planners for dealing with those exigencies? I think uh, the first and probably most important is honesty. Like we need to be honest in preparing our crews for this. Uh, we, need to, we need to train to this. We need to probably import some ambiguity into a lot of our training scenarios. Um, and then we need to take a realistic approach in the debrief towards, hey, was this avoidable? Was it unavoidable? Um, does the benefit outweigh the cost? Uh, and we need to be honest also in, in talking to the American press and the American public. Uh, I saw that there was a, a memo that came out from SECDEF about, you know, essentially it's about target area sanitization. And I worry that we got into a... Uh, a mindset during our years in Iraq and Afghanistan, where if that becomes our norm, we are going to be paralyzed. We just, we're not going to have the UAVs who are circling overhead for hours on end saying, Hey, look, this is, this is a safe target to hit. So I think we need to be honest with our expectations. We need to incorporate it into our training. Um, and frankly, from a practical side, we really need to increase our number of munitions because we have to accept that weapons to target pairing is going to be a, a messy business. And sometimes we're going to hit the wrong thing. Yeah. I'm reminded that, um, you know, that the success of the U S submarine force in world war two 
was mainly in cutting off the supplies that uh, that fed Japan, right? So we weren't the U.S. submarine force was not just sinking Japanese Navy combatants; it was sinking ships that were carrying supplies that fed the Japanese economy, which led to real hardship uh, among the Japanese people, among the civilians uh, in Japan. You know, so the the daily caloric intake, for example, uh, among people in Japan fell precipitously. Uh, and and yeah, are we ready for that? Are we ready to impose that kind of cost on the adversary when we have largely fought wars in the last you know, 30, 40 years where that was not part of the strategy? Yeah. I mean, it was called Operation Starvation. <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, that is the, I think, ugly reality of, of fighting a war at this level of consequence. Yeah. Sobering thoughts. Um, I know what I was going to say a few minutes ago. I wanted to get back to the title of your article because I think uh, we're now talking about that. Tighten the belt and cut the roads. So that's a play on the, the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is their initiative to build more resilience and, and capacity into uh, getting raw materials to China, right? So They've built overseas uh, locations uh, for farming. Um, they've built other ways to get oil and gas uh, you know, into, into China. Um, rather than having to ship everything through the Strait of Malacca, there are now ports in Pakistan and in uh, Bangladesh uh, where things can go over land, over rail uh, to China. Um, and so this really gets to the, I think, the big part of your article is this is going to be econo an economic war and that's that takes time that's the that's the paradox of of a long war not a short short sharp war where we're just sinking you know putting the chinese navy on the bottom yeah and i think it's also one where post iraq post afghanistan i think there's a broader sense that many of the services are trying to figure out what the future looks like and to some degree, there's a component of like, I don't want to get sent to the little kid's table. Like, I still want to be able to play in what is our pacing threat. And, you know, the advantage of the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, you just gave us a target set. You gave us a bunch of uh, nodes and hubs that are eminently targetable, and not just through military force, but political power. Like diplomacy and information are going to play in huge to this as well. It doesn't mean that we need to go out and try to, uh, you know, crater or blow up every port that the Chinese have created some deal with the host nation in regards to. It's no, it's okay. Renegotiate the deal. Yeah. Close off access. And if you can't achieve that, well, yeah, sabotage should be on the table or cordoning off that port should be on the table. But it also gives us the ability to, to start adjusting to the realities of an actual great power conflict where, you know, when I look at one of the successes of U.S. forces in World War II and the uh, ETO, are they successful in Normandy if they didn't have North Africa to fight there is a question that I ask. You know, you've, you've got to blood the force a little bit so that all those things that seem like a great idea in training – well, now you're testing that in reality and you're learning and becoming more effective, more efficient and more lethal. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm also reminded what, to, to your point about you, you don't necessarily have to sink all the ships in the Indian Ocean or, or destroy the ports in, you know, maybe Pakistan or Bangladesh. Um, another option is uh, actions by, you know, U.S. allies and, and partners, right? So you look, it was interesting to me to see how quickly the Indian Navy joined the forces in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden that are participating in, um, you know, Prosperity Guardian, uh, protecting merchant shipping through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. Uh, that speaks loudly to me. And the Chinese are not there, right? The Chinese Navy has not, you know, joined that force uh, to protect against the Houthi, the Iranian-backed Houthi forces. But the Indians are there, right? And so, in uh, in in this kind of a scenario where where Taiwan is. Uh, uh, is the prize, uh, and the Belt and Road is, uh, per, you know, perhaps a way to, uh, you know, tighten tighten down on those and and prevent uh, China from getting what it wants. I think India would be part of that, right? India. Yeah, can- I mean, a hugely important partner, um, yeah. one that consistently sends absolutely stellar officers uh, to the Naval War College. Um, one that I've worked with in um, exercises in the past and. Also one that has a uh, demographic uh, that is replacing China as the world's most populous country and one that has significant concerns over water resources with with China. So, right. yes. Right, right. Um, so one of the things, Tom, we asked the, uh, the authors of the phase three of the American Sea Power Project as they were looking in their particular domains uh, what what capabilities, what programs and, and uh, weapon systems uh, uh, would would make a difference if you could convince Congress and the White House to do anything right now, to do anything with the DOD budget this year, next year, uh, that would, if, if you amplified or accelerated those programs, would make a difference uh, now, right? It's because we're looking at the Davidson window, War of 2026 scenario. This is this is short term. We're not thinking about what would make a difference 30 years from now, but what would make a difference in the next two, three, four years. Uh, so, from from your perspective, um, what what if you could be king for a day, or talk to the SecDef or the president or or key members of Congress, what would your advice to them be? Uh, this is one of those areas where I'm going to. I'm going to defer to expertise. Uh, I don't know if you saw Admiral Paparo's uh, testimony uh, yesterday, but he said that his priority is counter C5 ISRT technologies. And I was like, yep, that's it. I, you know, I've, I've served with Admiral Paparo back when he was Commander Paparo, uh, and I was a lieutenant in the Narrowing in a different squadron. And uh, I don't say out of false modesty that he is smarter than I am. So, so I didn't take that um, blind faith, but I thought about it last night. I'm like, yeah, I think that's of all things. That is probably the most important thing. If you have a relatively centralized force that is going to be fairly reliant on uh, the ability to do long range targeting and centralized control, chipping away at their ability to make quick decisions and trust their information. I think that is the thing. Uh, I could give you a a shopping list, right? Um, 
Yeah, it's, no, I'm not looking for a shopping list of other things. But but yeah. I think that's an important point, right? It is, uh, you know, the, the Chinese have built this uh, very capable in terms of weapons and, and numbers of weapons and systems and platforms, uh, anti-access, area denial capacity, right? But it, it does depend on their ability to find, fix, and target, you know, U.S. and allied forces. And if they can't do that, it becomes a lot less effective. Good point. You look like you had another uh, a hanging chad there. No, I, I think it just, it kind of pairs into the um, consideration of, hey, where do we have an advantage? Because um, it's linked directly there. Um, human capital for the U.S. and allies is still where I believe we have a a fairly prominent advantage over the uh, over the plan. Um, and I say that looking at the senior leadership that we've been sending out to Westpac over the past several years, and it's impressive. Like it's, these are very, very intelligent senior officers who are also very realistic. And I think, um, um, sensibly aggressive. So we're good at the senior leadership level, but I also think that as, as Americans, we're, we're pretty good at exercising initiative. And I think many of our allies are as well. And we're also pretty comfortable with chaos in a way that our adversary likely isn't. So when you take away control measures, I mean, if I lose radio comms with the ship and I'm out flying, it's like, okay, my day just got better. You know, I'm, I'm very comfortable with autonomy yeah. in a way that other forces may not necessarily be. Yeah. And uh, as often as, um, you know, proceedings articles tend to point out ways that the U.S. Navy can be better and, and some of the shortfalls. And uh, and I know sometimes I hear from readers like there's a lot of bad news, you know, like, yeah, OK. But there's also always ideas on how to make how to make things better. We don't publish something without without you know, ideas on how to make it better. But I look at, with a, a great deal of pride at being part of or associated with the U.S. Navy, you look at what's going on in the Red Sea right now and the, the, the Gulf of Aden. And I, from my perspective, I, I haven't tested this uh, hypothesis, but it seems to me that this is the longest period, and it's been a couple months now, where the U.S. Navy ships are sailing in harm's way. Uh, they got an adversary that's throwing weapons at them all the time. Uh, it's a pretty dangerous environment out there on the surface and from the air. Um, and we're shooting down, you know, Houthi drones and, and missiles and we're striking targets uh, and we're, you know, replenishing at sea. Uh, there's a lot going on and, you know, they haven't skipped a beat. And, and I don't, you know, I would like to see the PLA Navy do that. And I think the reason one of the reasons they haven't joined the force other than politically is they're probably nervous about whether they could actually do that. Yeah. And there's I mean. Think about how how weird it is that we have normalized the fact that we have people who are shooting down missiles with missiles. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, this is the first, um, I think, steady use of, of Aegis since it was incorporated. At least that's a conversation I had with uh, Devere Crooks, the, uh, the vice chair of the board. Yeah. Um, and there are 18 and 19 year olds who are away from home for the first time being led by like 23 year olds with a CEO who is, you know, in his early or in her early forties. And they're just making this happen. And it's fantastic. 
Yeah. The uh, USS Gravely shot down a, uh, a missile with, uh, uh, with SeaWiz the other day, right? And, and so we, we, were, we were joking at the Naval Institute, like the, the pucker factor, and our, our CEO, CEO uh, Admiral Spicer, a former service warfare officer, he was like, ooh, you know, when you're shooting something down within a mile with SeaWiz, but hey, this is, this is all testing out these capabilities. And as you said, you know, these are being operated by 18, 19, 20 year old kids, uh, many of them on their first deployments and it's working. Uh, well, Tom, this has been a great conversation. We're getting towards the uh, the end here in terms of time. Uh, any closing thoughts or you know uh, things you'd like to add before we sign off? Yeah, I, I've I've had frequent conversations with one of my old uh, teaching partners um, about how the the World War II era Japanese viewed America. And his point was always they didn't understand how uh, how functionally violent we could be as a country. Mm. And I think that because as Americans, one of our one of our characteristics is we'd like to be liked. We're generally a friendly people. Um, but we also have a deep, deep reservoir of violence to call upon. And I don't think that any nation that does a preemptive attack against the United States is potentially fully appreciating what the aftermath of that decision could look like. Um, now, I'd love to be able to win this without fighting and uh, build the force that just deters any adversary actor from ever trying it. Um, but I think it's important that, you know, when you're mirroring and when you're considering your adversary's most likely course of action, look at the history of America when it gets attacked and don't underestimate like the absolute ferocity of what the response could be. This conflict that you could view as being very limited in time and in uh, location could rapidly become something far, far more significant than what you had intended. Yeah. I can't sum it up any better than that. That's a great point. Well, my, my uh, guest today has been Captain Tom Clarity, U.S. Navy. He's the author of an article in the January issue of Proceedings. It's titled Tighten the Belt and Cut the Roads. Tom, always great to have you on the show. Very uh, insightful and, and thought-provoking conversation. Thanks, Bill. All right. Today's show is brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies as a leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers, Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com slash defense. And I hope to see you at West, our big annual convention in San Diego, February 13, 14, and 15, so just about a week and a half from now. Admission is free to active duty military. Go to westconference.org to register. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.